0: Would you join with me in prayer? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Father, we we gather here knowing that we are beholding the creator of the heavens and earth, all that we see all that we touch, all that we behold, exists because of your will. Lord, in your presence, the mountains tremble. Lord, you are the mighty creator. And yet, Lord, you also are sustaining the very anthills outside of this room. Father, we can't fathom such knowledge that the nations are like a drop in the bucket to you. That Lord, the great kings, the great rulers of this earth, all of them their days you number, their heartbeats you determine. Lord, the world events you behold, and they are not a surprise to you, for you are the one who reigns over it all. Lord, your power and your beauty and your majesty, we were created to worship it and to enjoy it and to be in awe of you. And yet, Lord, we know that this week we have not been in awe of you, but rather we've been in awe of ourselves. We've chased after our own selfish desires. We've been discontent with our circumstances in life. We've envied one another. Lord, we've been hypocrites. We've spoken one thing to our neighbors with our mouths, but in our hearts we've been distant from that. Lord, we've lied. We've lusted. We've chased after our own namesake versus yours. Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who would stand? For you see it all. And yet, Lord, this morning we gather as your people and we stand singing praises to you, not because we were able to curry your favor through our piety this week, not through our scripture reading or through our kind acts, but rather we stand and we sing praises to you because we trust in the risen Christ, that he has died for our sins, that we have been washed in his blood, and that we stand before you not in our righteous deeds, but clothed in his perfect righteousness. And for that, We can rejoice that our iniquities are removed as far as the east is from the west and we have hope and lord it's this glorious hope that we cling to of our salvation and lord it's this glorious hope that we pray that local churches around us such as antioch of rdu would proclaim over and over to their people that this hope would change their hearts that it would change their marriages it would change the way they parent and change the way they engage in the workplace so that men and women would be drawn to you that they would behold you and see your glory and father that this beholding of your wondrous acts of saving people redeeming us that lord it would not just be contained in the raleigh area but that you would raise up missionaries from around the world to go to the unreached to the Majhai people of india lord that you would strengthen the existing churches that are there and father that in your kindness that you would give them eyes to see who you are. And Father, we thank you for the body you've collected here at Christ's Covenant, the various different members that are here, the different giftings you've given our body, some with creative minds, some with analytical minds, others with skills to work with their hands, and others who are great at listening and caring. Father, the desires of each of us to show hospitality and to love and engage, Father, we ask that we would be a people who would not be looking inward but rather that we would constantly be looking out for the needs of one another that we would not sow sparingly but rather we would sow generously in hopes that this body would reap generous fruits of your spirit that we would care for one another and that the world would be drawn to this father for each of us you've given us different talents and skill sets may we use them for one another and for our neighbors for your glory And, Father, we pray for Tom. We pray, Lord, that during this time you would soften our hearts and that you would give us sharp ears to hear him. Lord, for this week, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Thank you for Tom and his labor. Lord, thank you for the gift of life that comes from your word. And, Lord, we pray that as we listen to it, may we rejoice with Tom in this hope that we have. And, Lord, finally... We ask that you would hear this prayer, for we pray it not in our name and works, but in Christ alone. Amen.
1: The sermon text this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 and 2, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day.
2: When Apollo 8 was launched, Apollo 8 was the first manned spacecraft uh, that left the orbit, uh, the orbit of the Earth and circled the moon ten times. And as uh, Apollo 8 was circling the moon, uh, the three astronauts, Frank Borman and Jim Lovell and uh, Bill Anders, read from Genesis 1, 1 through 10. And they read each different section, each one having one. And a quarter of the earth was listening as they read those verses. One billion people spread across 64 countries heard Genesis 1, 1 to 11 being read as they looked down upon the earth and orbited the moon. You know, we're beginning this series in Genesis, and frankly, to prepare for this is, I feel like I've been drinking the ocean, so it's extremely intimidating to even try to step up here and think that I can explain something simple like, in the beginning, God. It's absolutely incredible, it's overwhelming, um, it's the beginning of everything, and yet we're going to find in this first chapter, it even foreshadows the end of everything. It's all there. We have, we're going to be speaking in these next 12 weeks from Adam to Abraham, looking at Cain and Abel, looking at the Tower of Babel, looking at the, the flood itself. It's incredible. And I know many of you have come with these questions, well, what about the historicity of Adam and Eve and the age of the earth and the age of humanity and and who made God, and what was in the beginning, before the beginning. And, and, and we have all these questions. And some of you may be sitting, well, you know, I hope he's going to use this text and explain why evolution is wrong, and, and that the six days were actually 24-hour days, and it's got to be that way. Well, we're going to be in unity that I won't do those things, and I won't satisfy any of you, and in that, we can be happy. How are we going to read this book? How are we going to try to understand it? Well, I I think it's a a message to be preached. Moses wrote this, not according to Genesis. We don't know Moses wrote Genesis. We we know it from Jesus. Jesus said it in the Gospels that he wrote Genesis. And he wrote it to a people coming out of slavery in Egypt. He's He's not trying to prove the existence of God. He's introducing us to God. So we're not going to look at this as a scientific paper to be delivered at some symposium or kind of an apologetical work against evangelism or even a strict chronological explanation of creation. I I don't think that's the point. I think he's trying to introduce us to God. We're going to look at this kind of through a framework. It's it's a literary work, as we're going to see. It's a theological work. It's not a myth. But, but there's a framework here. You know, Charles Simeon gives us some good wisdom in terms of our hermeneutics trying to understand the Scripture. And he says, my endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and to not thrust in what I think might be there. So we're going to look at this. You know, when, you, when you look at this chapter, it's incredible the symmetry of it. You have the first three days where he's forming things. He's taking and, and forming spheres in the first three days. And then you have him filling the spheres on the fourth and the fifth and the sixth day. So the, the spheres that he forms, the firmament and the seas and the sky and, and the earth, and he fills it. You see this, uh, the seven words of Genesis 1-1 are the same words in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, but in reverse order. There's this inclusio, that's what we call it. It's a framework. Uh, The the symmetry of the number seven, or multiples of seven, the first sentence in Hebrew is seven words. And God saw is used seven times. God said is used 14 times. The name of God, Elohim, is used 35 times. There are, are seven days in creation, I mean, the author has an intent here. You have one creation on the first and the second day. You have two on the third. You have one creation on the fourth and the fifth day, two on the sixth. I, I, this doesn't happen by chance. No one starts and writes a composition paper and has this come together. There's a purpose and intent here. Uh, Moses is telling to a people who have been enslaved under Egyptian paganism, and polytheism, and he's explaining God to them. He's explaining life to them. He's trying to show us and explain the universal human experience. Why do things seem so ordered, and yet there's so much disorder in our life? You know, why do things seem so fulfilling, and we can be so filled with joy over the things of this world, and then we're so frustrated over it? You know, I, I think this text is really going to lead us to understand God in greater measure. But I want to look at Genesis 1 as like like a framework that we look through. So B.B. Warfield was a great Princeton theologian in the 19th century. And he wrote these words. He says, a glass window stands before us. We raise our eyes and see the glass. We can note its quality and observe its defects. We speculate on its composition. Or we look straight through it to the great prospect of land and sea and sky beyond. So there are really two ways of looking at the world. We can look at the world and absorb ourselves in the wonders of nature. That is the scientific way. Or we may look straight through the world and see God behind it. That's the religious way. That's what I want to see. I I want to see God because this first chapter explains who God is. We're going to look at the author of creation, God himself. We're going to look at the act of creation, how he brought things as they are. And then we're going to look at the culmination of creation. So so the author of creation is right there in verse 1. The the act of creation you'll find in verses 2 all the way through 31. And then you'll see the culmination in chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Just want to introduce you to God. Many of us know God. We've come to this day with fuzzy notions. We've been wrapped up in a world and I just want to sit back and think about God for a moment. Look with me at the first verse. In the beginning, God, created the heavens and the earth. I mean, can there be a simpler statement, and yet one that leaves us with our mouth kind of hanging open? In the beginning, God. Now, what do we do with this? Is this a creative act? Is verse 1 actually when he made everything that we see? Or is it a summary statement? Well, I'm going to argue it's a summary statement. He's introducing the creator. And the reason I think it's a summary statement is because uh, Genesis uses summary statements. For example, we're going to see over the course of this whole book, we'll only be looking at the first uh, 11 chapters in this section, but he says, to the generations of. He says that 10 times. It's kind of a way of introducing. You see 1-1 one, one, and 2-1-3 to three form that, as I said, that inclusio, So I think it's a summary statement just introducing us to the idea of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Say created the heavens and the earth, created everything. So when it says, in the beginning, God created, we're introduced to a self-existent eternal God. He has no beginning. He was not made. He was not caused. He is the first cause of everything. There was no beginning. There was no making of God. He alone is self-existent. Uh, Moses says this in Psalm 90 when he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or before you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting your God. You know, what, what we find here is that If God is eternal, uh, this makes God. He's not the result of our imagination, as one author said. We are the result of his imagination. I mean, think about it for a minute. Whether you're here as a theist or whether you're here as a non theist, something eternal existed. You have a choice before you, actually. What, something, we are here. There is physical. There, we are here. We're thinking. You're seeing. We exist. And so something had to exist eternally. It, it's either matter or energy or some form of law or, or God. But something has, we all believe. Because it, it is philosophically untenable to think that something came from nothing. So something had to exist forever. You have the choice. Is it God or is it matter? But he says, in the beginning, God. There there is a beginning. So God did create all things in the beginning. There, There was a start. This differentiates Christianity from all other religions in the sense that we don't see the world as this continuous, steady change. But we see that, no, there there was a beginning. There there was a start. We may form and fashion and build with the things that we have, but he created all things out of nothing. Out of nothing. He spoke things into existence. Romans chapter 4 says God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I mean, that's incredible. Augustine says God did not create in time. He created with time. He even created time. So th- this is the God that we're introduced to, a self-existent, sovereign, unique God. So, so, so what, what do we take away about this sovereign God? He, he chose to create. He creates out of nothing. Sovereign over all things. Now remember, Moses is writing to a people who had been steeped in their polytheism. And remember now, there are many creation stories in ancient literature, all kinds of creation stories. Uh, But the creation stories in literature, they're always the gods are competing for power. The gods are fighting one another. The creation stories are always marked by sexual perversion. These creation stories, are there's dualism, there's competing factions. This is radically different. God alone creates. He has no competition. He has no threat. There's no competitors. There's no one vying for power. He alone chose to create, and he created all things. That makes him owner of all things. He owns all things, all things. He owns you. How does that make you feel? We all own stuff, even kids that are under 10. They, they may own a bike or they may own a toy. They own, you know, it's yours. You own it. You're responsible for it. It's accountable to you, if can be. But you own it. You know what I, He owns all things. That means he owns us. Nobody is to themselves. No, we're all creatures of a great creator. What do we do with this? I mean, I'm trying to first, I want to change the way you think about God and yourself, but then I want you to respond to what I'm asking you to think about. And and one response out of this that we could take away would be just sheer humility, that we're dependent, we're contingent, we've been created. I mean, You think about when you go to the ocean, Carol. I love the ocean, and you stand before the ocean, and it keeps its place. You know, it's there, and 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 you look out at its vastness. It's incomprehensible how big it is, how deep it is, how incredible it is, and and you can't help but feel a little less significant than you did before you saw it, or you stand underneath a, a dark sky. And you see the stars. So when we lived in Austria, we were out a bit in the country, and so there wasn't a city light to kind of diffuse the, the beauty of thousands. You can see 3,000, approximately 3,000 stars to the naked eye. And to see the stars. And they're, they're thousands of light years away. The, the, just the expansiveness in everything. Uh, the humility of it. God has created a theater for his glory so that we would remember he is sovereign over all things and we are but creatures in his creation. We don't want God to humble us. We want to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. You don't want to be, you know, when Job had to be instructed, God did take him to task. In Job 38, he says, what is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and, I'll, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. It's almost God exercising sarcasm here. Go ahead, t- tell me about the earth. God uses the earth to humble Job and to remind him Of his great glory. Now, now God doesn't humble us to crush us. He doesn't want to humble us. He he humbles us to comfort us. Remember, Moses is writing to these, these children of Israel to remind them of the goodness of God, that God's not detached. They had suffered, they had gone through 400 years of difficulty. God's not detached, He's not been pushed around by these other gods. He wants to comfort us, to help us, to strengthen us. Creation, he points to creation to show them, no, God cares, God is compassionate. You do suffer in this life. This life is difficult. But remind yourself of the glory of God in creation to not fall prey to thinking that he doesn't care. Doesn't Jesus do the same thing? Doesn't he say, consider the lilies of the field? They don't toil, they don't spin, and yet, God cares for them. How much more important are you? He goes, Jesus goes to creation. I would remind you to go to creation, that, he, that many of us are suffering right now. Maybe you're acutely lonely. You just want a relationship with someone. Or maybe your relationship has gone sideways. Or maybe it's financial, maybe it's health. But you're suffering greatly. You know, that's what Peter does when he encourages the early church. He says in 1 Peter, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Why? Because to know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I can find comfort there. God, you know all things. You're sovereign over all things. All things exist by your pleasure. I can go to you and find comfort so you can take your troubles to him. That's what I'm encouraging you to do, that whatever is most just pressing on you, this is a God that you can run to who is full of power and glory, sovereignly leading and loving his creation. And of course, it should lead to to worship. I mean, when you think about, can you imagine all these, these children of Israel coming out of slavery? They've been just bathing in a sea of Egyptian polytheism with the gods of the sun, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the stars, all these gods. And then he says, no, he made the sun and the moon and the stars. He made them all. It leads us to worship God. What other choice do we have? Do we stand in competition to God? Do we stand as if we don't need God to give us breath? All of us laid down last night. We all lay down in the same way that we will be laid down when we die. God just reminding you every day, your days are numbered. And by the way, every one of them is known to him before one came to be. It leads us to worship him. Not in fear, as we're going to find out. Uh, He's invested in his creation. He's going to give his own son to his creation. You know, Charles Bridges was this theologian in the 19th century, an English Anglican. He wrote the book Christian Ministry. It really was the, the kind of the book to go to for learning Christian ministry. We still have our interns read it. Some love it, some hate it, but it's a great book. And, and, and he teaches in this book about approaching God with reverent affection. There's a reverence there. He is the creator. There's a holiness. There's an otherness to him. He's not like us, but better. He's different entirely from us. And yet he's loving, and he's kind, and he's giving us breath right now to even hear this sermon as I talk about him. So we approach God with reverent affection. That's worship. The affections are involved. The mind is engaged. There is humility There's joy, there's comfort. So this is the God of one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the author of creation. But let's look at how he created. Uh, Look with me at 2 to 5, verses 2 to 5. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So if 1-1 is a summary statement, then 2, through the end of the chapter, I would say would kind of unpack that summary statement. And this is what we see in verse 2. Notice when he says the earth was without form and void darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, what is this? What do we have here? Is this, is this kind of the embryonic stage of the earth? Well, we're not told. We don't know. It's matter that's been created by God. It's formless and void. It, 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 it has this this barrenness to it. It it, it has a wasteland feel to it, a moonscape. You can't inhabit this. Now, a lot of people will give a lot of views on what verse 2 is. But because verse 2 is followed by a creation story, I'm assuming this is needed to explain how we got to what we have. And I don't think that it's this primordial mass, if you will, isn't necessarily bad, because notice what immediately follows. The Spirit of God is hovering over. That word to hover is kind of to flutter its wings like a like a mother bird kind of protecting and developing the eggs under her care. So, so the Spirit of God is hovering over this. And what we're going to see is the Spirit of God brings fullness to the barrenness. It's going to bring light to the dark. It's going to bring rest to the chaos. It's going to bring It's going to bring life from death. And that's what we see here, that the Spirit of God with Elohim, they're bringing forth what we're going to find, a fullness out of an emptiness. The void will be filled. How does he do it? Well, he does it by his word. This this God is a speaking God. He's a a personal God. He, He speaks, he plans, he makes. He has intention, he has knowledge, he has will. And he speaks all things. He says, let there be light, and there was light. Who can do that? Who can see, let there be a tree, and a tree? He speaks things. His word is by divine fiat. It isn't a process. It's an activating word. There's an activating power. He speaks, and it is. And it's the way it's supposed to be. I can make things. They're never the way they're supposed to be. They're never, and it's frustrating getting there. He speaks, and it is, and it's good. There's no improvement upon it. So everything I make, it needs improvement. So I just say, well, they're features. They're unique features you can't get anywhere else. They've come from my imperfect hand. But he creates, and it is, and it's good. And notice how he does it. I want you to see the beauty of the writing here. These first three days, he's forming spheres. So he speaks about creating creating light, separating darkness from light, therefore, creating a firmament. There's day, there's night. In the second day, he separates the waters in this expanse. The waters above, the waters below. John Calvin called these the clouds in the sky. He creates the sky and he creates the seas. He separates those. He forms the seas and the sky. And then he gathers the water together and separates it from the land. And he he causes and forms earth. So he creates these spheres On the first and the second and the third day. And then in the fourth day, he begins to fill what he formed. So on the fourth day, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. He fills the firmament that he formed on the first day. So the earth was formless. He formed it. The earth was void or empty. He fills it. And he fills the the firmament with the stars and the sun to guide the day and the night. Notice, it says, and the stars. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says, it's like an afterthought. Oh, by the way, he made all the stars, just if you're wondering. If you're wondering all those billions of stars, he made them all too. It's almost like, his words, he can make a worm or a whale. It doesn't take more effort. A spider or a star, there's no more effort exercised to cause one or the other. He speaks into life. So on the fourth day, he fills the firmament. On the fifth day, he fills the sea with sea creatures, and he fills the sky with birds. You can look at it. He he formed the sea and the sky on the second, he fills it on the fifth. And then you know, of course, on the third, he separated the waters from the ground, made the earth. On the sixth day, he fills. He fills it with animals, every creeping thing, humans, which we'll look at next week more, uh, more directly. And, and everything else he fills on the sixth day. So you see this God who brings order out of chaos. It was formless, he formed it. It was void, he filled it. That's how God, that's why it's a framework that we're to see how he creates. And it's a beautiful framework. So it teaches us about the nature of God by how he creates. Look at this with me. How does he create? He creates by his word, right? So he speaks and it, it's formed. His word gives life to all things. His word gives existence to all things. You see this not just in creation, but you see this in the children of Israel. His words give direction, give life, give salvation, draw men and women to himself, his word. But where his word giving life is most beautifully seen in parallel to Genesis 1 is in the giving of Christ. You know, when John, the gospel writer, the apostle John, he opens his whole gospel of Jesus with the exact same opening as Genesis. In John 1, one. In the beginning was the word. In the, oh, did he just think, hey, that's a great way to open up. It was a dark and stormy night. Now that doesn't work. In the beginning. No, in, he, he is peril, he's drawing our minds back to Genesis 1 to say, no, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was Christ was there at creation. Elohim, the Spirit, the Son, the Word of God. That's what we learn. John 1.1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's saying Christ was there at creation, the word of God. And now he's come among us to give us life. Didn't he in his ministry? When he spoke to Lazarus, he created life in him. Christ creates life. He's come to make all things new, to make a new creation in himself. So when you think, you don't make this stuff up. In the beginning, God created the heavens. In the beginning was the Word. Christ there creating all things, making all things new. That's why all glory be to Christ. That's why we sing that. But not only does he create by his Word, but he also creates an order, right? He creates orderly. I mean, the sun and the moon, we need them, right, to regulate our planet, to keep the seasons so that we can exist on this world. We need these things. There's an order to it. This is why science exists as a field of study. I mean, if there was no order to our universe, you couldn't study it. If the law of gravity changed every other day, you couldn't study it. I mean, think about it for a minute. I mean, we know that on April 30th and on October 25th, there's going to be solar eclipses. We know that. You can plan on it. There'll be a partial solar eclipse. We know that in 2061, Halley's Comet's going to come swinging around again. I won't be here to see it. I have no doubt about that. But, but it, we know. In fact, the vapor trail, every year, the Earth, uh, uh, one non-theist scientist said, oh, we'll hit it like clockwork. There's order. There's order to his creation. He created it with intent, with purpose, with knowledge. He knows where it's going. He creates good. Seven times, and it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. God creates a moral universe. There's beauty, there's majesty, there's variety. There's, you, you look at creation and you're amazed at the breath and the wonder of it all. There's a goodness to it. you realize there's a goodness to even giving us food to eat? Now, it's been bantied about that I may like food. It is true. I like food. But I want you to know I like food because God likes food. Think about it. God created us in a garden of food. Now, in paganism, in the religions at this time, the creatures would always have to bring food to their god. But God brings food to us. God creates food for us to enjoy him. That's why we always give thanks for all things, whatever we eat. He's good to us in that way. He gives us food. The bread and the wine that you'll drink, that was a gift to you from him. As you think about Christ's body broken and his blood shed, gave us food to remind us every month, this is what I've done for you. But notice one other thing. He's also created redemptively. You know, you look at this primordial mass there in verse 2, and he brings forth from that beauty, order, glory, fullness, rest, blessing. He brings forth from that formlessness, and void. This is a picture of what God does. This is why I love Christian ministry. Because Christian ministry is around the Word of God, and the Word of God gives life and order to people. Many of us, we have lives that are disordered for one reason or another it may not have been your issue it may have been it may have been a collection of things it may have been a thousand things it may have been parents or children our our, our worlds are all broken kind of twisted it may be health it may be relational it may be financial god brings order to your life through his word it was the word of god that drew the formlessness and void to produce all things that we now see This is why we come to church every Sunday. Uh, We don't need some place to be on Sunday morning. We come here to hear the word of God. That's why the pulpit is central underneath the cross so that every week your notions of God have grown hazy as John prayed. Your, your pursuits of the pleasures and things of this world have distracted you and have kind of ruined you. And yet you come back and God's word is going to recalibrate you and it's going to set you back on right ordered path. This is why we need Sunday morning. We need to hear the word change us. This is what, listen to what Paul writes. Now, you have to listen to this. Because it's profound, but it's not explicit. He writes in 2 Corinthians, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the word of God, Jesus, same, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see the same spirit working over the formlessness and void bringing forth order. The spirit now applies the word of God to the people of God, changing us into the image of the son of God. That's why we gather. That's why you come hungry. How do I need to be recalibrated? How do I need to be adjusted again? That I can live back in an ordered way, enjoying God. Rightly relating to God the Creator, not loving things inordinately, not taking the things that He has given to us for our good and our pleasure and making them a replacement to God, but but loving them at the right order and loving them at the right level, not over loving things or under loving things. So that's how He creates. Now, I know that there are some of you that are still scratching your head saying, yeah, but what about the day? What about the 24-hour day? You know, you just have those inquiring minds and you can't turn it off. Well, I, I do want to address it for you. For those with inquiring minds, we'll talk about, was the day 24 hours? Now, I, I even hesitate raising it up because you're gonna, half of you probably will question my orthodoxy. I don't want you to do that. I am orthodox, I can assure you but some of us will take the 24-hour day and we're going to make it a test of orthodoxy. I want to draw unity here. I want us to rejoice around the creator, not the length of a day in creation. So was the day, were these six days, six 24-hour days? It could be. I mean, it was the predominant use of the Hebrew word yom that it means a 24-hour day. That's the general use outside the garden for sure. That's the predominant use. Does it have to be that? Well, I, I don't know that it does. Again, I'm not looking to put a rock in your shoe. I'm trying to take a rock out of your shoe. Unfortunately, the, 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 you know, this 24-hour thing has broken us into camps and groups. What's called us together as creatures under this great creator is somehow formed problems. So think about this with me. You have the day. Is it 24 hours? It could be. He could have done it all in 24 hours. But, but does it have to be? No, I don't think it does. And why do I say that? Well, I say that because day has a number of meanings. You, it can be a 24-hour day. Day can also be a 12-hour day time. We, we use day as day time from sun up to sun down. We use day as a period of time. Yeah, that was the day of radio, we say. That's the day of the Lord. So it doesn't have to be a 24-hour day. Uh, secondly, you see that Uh, The days aren't all the same in this story, right? I I mean, you have vegetation sprouting on the third day, but the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. So how can vegetation sprout without the sun being here? The sun is needed to cause the vegetation to sprout. So uh, what's going on there? Or how about the seventh day? The seventh day, there is no evening and morning. There was a seventh day. Does that mean it's an eternal day? If the sun's not even created until the fourth day, what were the first three days? We call them God days? What kind of days were they? And then then you have the sixth day. The sixth days, that was a busy day if you're going to look at 24-hour days. He had to name all the animals. That's a ton of them. We're still discovering them. So he had to name all the animals. And then he had to grow lonely because you couldn't find one to suit him. Now, you know, was that in the afternoon? I mean, Carol, she misses me when I'm gone, but she can definitely handle an afternoon without me. In fact, sometimes she finds it pleasurable. So, so, so uh, did he create all, you know, he names all the animals, he then grows lonely, and then God still has to create the woman on the sixth day. And then he has to write a piece of poetry for her. So it, could it have all happened? Sure. But, but it doesn't have to. I think, again, understanding Genesis through this framework will help, avoid some of the pitfalls that we get into when we try to thrust back into the text what we think might be there. But maybe is not. So so here you have the author of creation in verse 1. You have the act of creation in chapter 1, verse 2 through 31. But then look with me at the culmination of creation because this is what I ultimately want you to really understand because it leads us right to the table. It's so... Beautiful. Look at two, one to three with me. Says, "Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Now here we have this. You could ask, and this is where you know these chapter divisions were introduced in the fifteenth century, and then." Uh, ver- verses uh, later. and He might have missed this one. I'm just saying, seventh day. But, but, but there's something interesting about chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, is why is it even here? I, it, nothing was done, right? I, I mean, he finished six days. You would argue that, okay, we all know it's done. You finished on the sixth day. But there's something important for us to see. It says God rested on the seventh day. Now, when he said he rested, Uh, We think of leisure, rest, relax. We think of taking it easy, sitting down and putting your legs up. I've moved 10 yards of mulch in a day, and so I'm exhausted. I need to rest. Is is that what he's... No, the word rest in Hebrew means to complete, to accomplish, to do. It's a job well done. God is resting. He He is enjoying all that he has just made. God himself values it as good, and rejoices in it. And that's what blesses the day, is that God chose to rest to enjoy. And that's what forms the basis of the Sabbath keeping that you see in the Old Testament in particular, where the Sabbath was a day given to the people of Israel to rest and enjoy what God has done. They twisted, they moved it into a set of laws that were hard to, to function in and enjoy God with. But God initially gave it for them to enjoy him. Now think about this for a minute. There was no other culture that ever advanced to Sabbath day. Why? Well, of course, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath would be on a Saturday. If, if your crops are about to, if they need to be harvested, remember agrarian culture, crops need to be harvested. Storms are blowing in Thursday night, Friday night. You're working on Saturday. You're not taking off. You got to get the crop. You lose the crops, you lose your city because the food's gone. There's no place to get food. You're growing it, and if you, and God says, "No, you rest." If the storms come in, you rest. I'm the Creator. I, I'll give you food if I need to. I'll bring heaven. I'll bring food from heaven if I need to. And so Israel was there, showing their delight and their trust in the Creator God, because even on the Sabbath they're not going to work. Everybody worked every day. You work to eat. You work to live. No, no, no. This day you'll rest. I bless this day. So. Now, we're not Sabbatarians here. We don't follow this strict rule on Sabbath. But there is wisdom to rest. Not rest on the weekend to get a break from work. It's a day to contemplate, to think, to meditate. And that's why we, we of course, do that on Sunday because the early church did it because Christ was raised on Sunday. There's still value in that. But I, I want you to see something different here. Because I think this is a foreshadowing of a greater rest he's bringing us to. What am I talking about here? I don't think this is simply pointing to a rest from the labor. See, Moses, writing to the nation of Israel, knows about the fall, right? It already happened. So he knows the fall's coming. He knows that we work with toil and burden, the sweat of our brow. But he's pointing to a rest, a different type of rest, It's not a rest from the toil and the burden of work. It's a rest from the toil and burden that we feel in the problems that we have in life, in our own sin, our guilt, and shame. And so you see this whole creation story set up another story, another recreation story. Jesus himself said, I'm going to come and make all things new. Jesus is going to recreate all things. That's why John is setting up in the beginning was the word and so jesus comes and he makes all things new but he makes all things new by his own willingness to lay down his life take upon himself the curse of our sin our shame our guilt die for that so that we might be reconciled to god to re-enter the rest that he has given to us and the rest we have now that this points to is a rest from the weight and the burden of our failures and the brokenness of our world. This is what Genesis 2, 1 to 3 is pointing to, this eternal rest of forgiveness and reconciliation. And isn't it, does it really surprise you that Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. He can offer it because he's going to achieve the rest in recreating all things in himself so that he now is the head of the church, his very own body. We're now in Christ with this eternal rest, never to be taken from you. That's why there's no evening and morning, the seventh day, because there is no end to the rest that we will have in him. That's the rest we have. And that rest is immortalized in the very table that we celebrate. So when you're going to hold the bread and and the elders going to lead us in this broken for you, achieving for us a rest. If, If you're a Christian here and you're going to be taking this, we Christians can still mourn over our sin. And there are sins that we've committed that are deep and significant and the memory does not go away fast. And I can't remove the hurts and the pains you've experienced, but I can assure you that when he offers his rest, there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation. You are loved by God. You are loved by God. There's neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that will be able to separate you from the rest that he gives to you. And you know what? This table that we're about to celebrate doesn't just remind us of the rest that we have, but the rest that we will have in fullness. Because think about it. God said it's finished. He finished his work. It was done and he rested. Jesus on the cross? What did he say? He said it's finished. He said the same thing. It's finished. He finished it. He finished his recreation. He now has reconciled men and women to God. And do you know what he's going to say on that final day? In Revelation 21? He says, it's done. It's finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Says it at the beginning, at creation. Says it at redemption. He says it at glorification. It's done, folks. This is a. This is why all glory be to Christ. He's given us this rest. Let's take a moment now and just ask God for grace before we celebrate communion. Ask Him, the Creator of all things, to open your eyes to the glory of this rest confessing your sins, but confessing your sins knowing that he said it's finished. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment as we prepare for the table.